Tuesday it is. It is March 14th, 2023. Welcome to your Richie Allen Show. How are you? You well? Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, March of many weathers was yesterday. Today was March of even more many weathers, if that makes any sense. We've had the full gamut today. Rain, hail, sleet, a little bit of snow and warm sunshine permeating through all of that madness. Yeah, it's Tuesday's program. Do get in touch with me during the course of the next two hours via my website, richieallen.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you on the subjects being discussed today. And I've got two terrific guests for you. Returning to the program this hour, Kim Isherwood chairs the campaign group Public Child Protection Wales. They represent thousands of parents who oppose the Welsh Government's plans to force children as young as three to learn about sex and gender identity. That's in the news again. I'll tell you more about that in due course. And in the second hour, I'll be welcoming live from Ireland, Sarah Habubi will be on the programme. She's an international speaker, a coach and an NLP practitioner. She's been involved with something called the Think Local Conference in Ireland, which ran at the end of February. It's an initiative to help people build parallel systems to make the current dystopian globalist-led systems become obsolete. Sarah Habubi in the second hour. It'll be a good old show today, so it will. I think that's the first time in eight and a half years we ever saw it through to the end of The Sting. Anyway, The Sting. Now that was a film, wasn't it, dear listener? That was a film. Robert Redford, Paul Newman, God be with the days. Do you want to hear the maddest thing that I heard today? Do you? I'll go on then. Dr. Lawrence Buckman is a serious dude. He is um, a former British Medical Association GP committee leader. He's a serious doctor and he's often used by the legacy media. He was on talk television or talk radio with Julia Hartley Brewer today. And he said, well, unless you have the money for private health care, don't even think about getting sick for the next 10 years. 10 years. Don't believe me? It's over to Julia. When is he going to be safe? to get ill in this country and not have private health insurance. What a question. What a question. When is it safe? We'll let Julia ask it again. It's serious. When is it going to be safe to get ill in this country and not have private health insurance? What year? What year? (laughs) To be precise, what year? Dr Lawrence Buckman then. I don't think during the next 10 years. What? That's terrifying. That is really, really terrifying. Do you think the the doctors should get their... uh, 35% 35% pay rise or half that or even a third of that? Hang on, Julia. Hang I on. I think the doctors need to sit down and talk with the Secretary hang, of State. Hang on. Hang on. What do you mean terrifying when he said 10 years and then you jump into a question about the junior doctor's pay rise? I mean, have you ever heard of a follow-up question, Julia? I don't know, something like, something like uh, so many thousands of people will die unnecessarily each year, not from their illness, but due to lack of treatment. Is that what you are telling us, Dr. Buckman? 
No, no, Julia just moves on. Let's talk about the junior doctors, because, of course, Julia Hartley-Brewer, the thinking man's bit of crumpet, has plenty of dosh and won't need to worry about public health care. Let's hear that again. I mean, the question was brilliant. When is it going to be safe to get ill in this country and not... What year, she says? I don't think during the next 10 years. Not not, not during the next 10 years. Don't get ill. Whatever you do. If you cannot afford private health care, try and stay well. Otherwise, you might be fecked. Bigara. Faith and Bigara. And be Jesus and the Shamrocks. Wow. I mean, that's that's major news, isn't it? A GP of such standing to say don't get sick for the next 10 years because the outcome might not be too good for you. Anyway, maybe the BBC's Jeremy Vine, who's so good he's got two shows on two different networks in the same day. He spends his mornings on Channel 5 television and then he migrates across London. He cycles across London to BBC Radio 2 studios where he presents a lunchtime radio programme, meaning he's brilliant, obviously. He's obviously brilliant. I mean, you wouldn't be on you know, Channel 5 in the morning and then BBC Radio 2 in the afternoon unless you were excellent, unless you were the most outstanding presenter of all time. So let's, um, he's surely got something to say. You know, on this lockdowns, killing people, no treatment for 10 years, don't get sick for 10 years, cost of living crisis might kill you first, people eating out of food banks, other people coming over here in small boats, the government doesn't have a clue. Surely to God, Jeremy Vine's the man to cut through all of this and get straight to the heart of the truth. Do you go sweet or salty? What? Sweet. Mix. You mix. Get, you could have no, no. sweet and salty. You've got to take a view. Yeah. You've got to take a view. Oh. You go mixed. Well, no, we... no, me on the fence. Oh, let's just check <laughs> over here. Hands up for sweet. Popcorn. Okay. Ah, popcorn he's talking about. Three. Hands up for salty. Two. That's mysterious. And mysterious indeed. And the mix. Hands up if you didn't yeah, we've got mix. One mix yeah? We've got one. yeah, the government is exacerbating the situation in Ukraine by sending, I don't know what they're sending, weapons, bombs, bullets the ingenuity to fly planes. That's causing chaos, of course. The government is screwing up the migrants coming in on small boats. People are starving to death in this country. But we'll talk about sweet or salty popcorn. Absolutely fantastic. You daft prick. Indeed. That's some bombshell, that, isn't it, by Lawrence Buckman, GP. Don't get sick in the next ten years. They've screwed it up uh, royally. Your government... Uh, James O'Brien then, LBC Radio's resident virtue signaller. James is pissed off at the government's plans to tackle migrants arriving on small boats. He's pissed off. Uh, The illegal migration bill was introduced in the Commons uh, only last week, I think. Yes, it was, March 7th. And it's due to have its second reading on March 13th, which was yesterday. And I think yesterday they agreed to give it a further reading, didn't they? Yes, they did. I'm bringing you up to speed. Yes. So yesterday, they discussed this again in Parliament and agreed that it should proceed to another reading. The government says the illegal migration bill is to prevent and deter unlawful migration, and in particular, migration by unsafe and illegal routes, by requiring the removal from the UK of certain persons who enter or arrive in the UK in breach of immigration control. Now, the language is the thing that James O'Brien on LBC ain't happy about. It's driving him crazy. Let's hear James O'Brien then for the crack, for the crack. Perhaps the the saddest thing about it is the way in which everybody now uses the word illegal to describe people arriving here via small boat. 
It is not illegal to arrive here in a boat and claim asylum. Uh, it, it, I mean, I suppose they can bring in laws, they're trying to bring in laws that means we could call it illegal, but it would still be in breach of international law. Under international law, under, I, I guess it'd be the Refugee Convention, you are entitled to arrive in a country by irregular means without documentation and claim asylum. That That is international refugee law. Yeah, but there are those in this country who say that such laws are being abused by people who don't really need to apply for asylum in the UK. People who are coming here from a country where they are safe, their home country in many cases, coming here because they believe the economic landscape is more appealing to them. That's the issue. And of course, guys, intellectually redundant idiots like James O'Brien, they know this. Of course, it isn't illegal for somebody to take their chance, get into a dinghy or another small boat and cross the channel. Of course, that isn't illegal. And then they arrive, they claim asylum, there's supposed to be a process. And that process is supposed to weed out those who are genuinely fleeing persecution and give them safe haven and to separate those out from those who are not fleeing any sort of persecution whatsoever, and who want to come here because they think things are a bit better here than in their own country. But of course, this doesn't happen, this process. This government and the previous government and the previous government and Tony Blair's Labour governments and Gordon Brown's government and John Major's government fail to deal with this because they're not supposed to deal with it. It's part of another agenda. So they don't. And that causes problems already creaking public services underfunded and, well, undermined by governments, well, they collapse, you see. That's what people are concerned about. We're not stupid, you know. We know there's a difference between people coming from countries where head-chopping gangs of people roam through villages, killing people, usually with weapons given to them by this country, funnily enough, and France and the United States and Israel and others. But there are scallywags too coming in on boats and they don't really need to be here. Let's hear a little bit more from James O'Brien. You can arrive in a country by, in their own word, irregular means without documentation and claim asylum. It is therefore legal for a refugee to arrive in the UK by small boat. Yeah, but they're not all refugees, James. And I think you know that. He's not listening to this, of course. You know they're not all refugees, that many of them are not fleeing anything. You know this, obviously. Boat, provided that they apply for asylum on arrival and that their claim succeeds. And lots of them don't apply for asylum upon arrival. Lots of them skip the, 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 the centres provided for them, places they're supposed to remain in while their application is being processed. Many of them deliberately destroy their documents. They didn't lose their documents when they were fleeing oppression. Some do, obviously, but not all of them. They rip them up because they don't want to be discovered. They don't want it to be discovered, that they don't really have any legitimate claim to asylum here, and they shouldn't be coming here for economic reasons, you see. This is the problem. Some of them then escape or abscond from not... We, we can call them detention centres, immigration centres, hotels and whatnot. And then you have a problem, don't you? Not according to James O'Brien. This stuff doesn't happen. If their claim fails, then their legal status obviously changes. Their legal right to be here for the duration of their asylum application 
changes. Yeah, and you know as well as I know that this government and previous governments did a piss poor, are doing a piss poor job in removing those whose claims are denied, James. You know this, right? Yeah. And again, the impact this is having on public services all over the country, well, it's massive. Everywhere you turn in the media, um, they are describing these people as illegal immigrants. And they manage to manipulate the polling accordingly. Because if you ask the British public whether or not refugees coming to this country with a valid case should be deported and destined never to return, then, well, you would get a very different answer to if you described them as illegal migrants. Yeah, but you're supposing that the great British public is thick as mints, that they don't understand the difference. They're not stupid. When the government uses, well, sharpish language like illegal immigrants, right, the average Joe on the street understands what is being claimed. People who don't have a legitimate reason to be here, as opposed to people who do. And the majority of people I've met during my career in media, when you ask them, the majority now, should we provide shelter, should we provide care for people fleeing genuine oppression, everybody says, yes, of course we should. Should we prevent people from coming to the country when they don't have a legitimate claim that they are being oppressed and they are only coming here for a better life? Now, that's a more complicated question because I, Paddy Irishman here, came to this country because there were better opportunities here for me than there were in my own country, you see. So that's a question for... That's a question that needs to be kind of broadened out a bit. The, the obvious answer is, if you are undermining and underfunding and destroying public services, well, it isn't a good idea to open the doors to economic migrants when you cannot serve the needs of the people who live here already, you see. But you'll never get these nuanced, fleshed-out discussions on television or radio in this country. It's binary choice. You either are a good citizen and you open your arms and say, yes, let's just let anybody who wants to come here, come here. Migrants welcome, refugees welcome, and all of that. Um, If you try to broaden that out and say, well, hang on a second, well, then you're just a bigot and a Nazi and all the rest of that jazz. It's quarter past the hour. This is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. With me, strangely enough, Richie Allen. It's lovely to be with you. Um, Yeah, let's go this way. I've got so much to tell you that I'm editing in my mind as we go along. Frank Furedi is a sociologist at Kent University. He was on this programme once, but he won't come back. That's okay. He wrote an article in The Telegraph at the weekend, suggesting, did Frank, that COVID lockdowns and government fear tactics have reduced the UK to a nation of germaphobes. Now, that's an exaggeration, because I know a lot of people who saw through the COVID lies from, well, from early doors, right? And we are not a nation of germaphobes. But... Point taken, some people have been adversely affected by the lockdown. Their personalities have certainly been adjusted by the government fear tactics. Let's listen to Frank Ferreira. Here he is with Mike Graham on Talk TV today. I I think it is very interesting the way in which um, the lockdown experience and and the way that people have been treated and uh, become become the target of alarmist fear campaigns Mm. has left a legacy. And when I talk to people, there's quite a significant minority of individuals 
who've adopted a kind of lockdown syndrome to the point at which they become much more wary of human contact. They become much more wary of, of going out and interacting with people. People who more or less believe that the minute they cough or sneeze, uh, it's a precursor to getting COVID or mm. some other nasty disease. Do you know people like that, dear listener? He said that there are people out there who have become accustomed to the idea that they are, you know, they've, they've come to believe that germs are scary and we better be careful and therefore they've become a bit reticent about going out as much as they used to. Do you know any such person? I don't, but I'm sure they exist. More from Freddy. And I think the, uh, the wear and tear of that lockdown experience has made us, or at least a section of society, much more anxious, much more insecure, uh, far less able to get on with life in the way they've done beforehand. And I think that that culture of fear, which a uh, section of the government were responsible for, is something that we need to think about because, you know, Britain needs to be a, a nation of risk takers. We need to be a nation that likes adventure, that's prepared to put themselves on the line rather than behaving like as if we're... Uh, continually ill and powerless and vulnerable and not able to take control of our lives. I'd love to get some understanding, some inkling of how many people we might be talking about. In Are we talking hundreds of thousands? Are we talking, talking more than that? The Telegraph ran a story over the weekend that suggested 18 to 25-year-olds were, you know, among... W- w- the, the group, if you want to look at 18 to 25-year-olds as a specific group of people, they kind of enjoyed lockdown, allegedly. This is in the Telegraph. And polling or, or a survey seems to suggest that that particular group would be more open-minded, was not open-minded, would be more likely to embrace a lockdown in the future. I don't know. Sociologist Frank Ferrady also had an opinion on Gary Lineker Lineker will return to the BBC this weekend to present Match of the Day after being stood down last weekend after he had likened the language used by the Home Secretary Suella Braverman when she was laying out the government's small boat plans or plans to deal with small boats. Lineker likened her language to 1930s Germany. He was stood down... Some of his co-stars, if you want to call them that, many or all of them maybe, they stood back in solidarity with him. There was no programme with presenters. It's all coming back this weekend. The sociologist had something to say about it. When you think about the world today where people like Lineker can so casually use the word Nazi uh, towards people Mm. which disagrees uh, and essentially basically says, you better shut up because Nazis are not allowed to have a voice. Well, Gary Lineker hasn't told anybody to shut up, to be honest. Let's be, let's be fair about it. You kind of begin to realise that we live in a highly polarised world which continually attempts to quarantine other opinions from being expressed because what the point, whole point about the whole metaphor of being a Nazi or, or, or that term being used is to silence dissident opinion. Mm. And what's really worrying is that, you know, we're not talking about a politician here, a seasoned politician, a, a political operator... We're talking about a football commentator who's, who's using, who's weaponizing football, who's essentially... He's not weaponizing football. ...harnessing football towards a very clear political objective. And I, no, I, he doesn't have a very clear political objective, Gary Lineker. No, he doesn't. Gary Lineker might be the biggest idiot in the BBC, and there's a good argument to be made that he is. 
and he's obviously not got the first iota. He hasn't got the first clue about immigration and what's really going on. But he's just the guy who has an opinion. And it's so ironic to me that in the last few days, guys like Furedi and others who were screaming bloody murder during lockdowns about the banning or shadow banning of people with dissenting points of view, they're now suggesting that Gary Lineker shouldn't be calling people Nazi. Free speech absolute or or, or not. These guys claim to be free speech absolutists, but of course they're not really. They are when they're on GB News and Talk TV talking to echo chambers where they've all got the same opinion. But in reality, they're not really in favour of free speech. Gary Lineker is a clown. He hasn't a clue, but he's got the right to be a clown and he has the right not to have a clue and therefore he should say whatever he wants. And I'll tell you something else, dear listener. I I say to them, have at it. Continue to call people Nazis because ultimately you end up watering down that... Um, that, that turn of phrase. Ultimately, it becomes meaningless. When you use it so often and you throw the term Nazi at everybody who sees things differently than you, eventually it becomes meaningless and it has no impact whatsoever. So I say continue to call people Nazis as often as you want. I couldn't give a damn. Makes no difference to me. So it doesn't. This is your Richie Allen Show, 21 minutes past the hour. Your comments, please, to the website. It is comment live, top of the menu bar. I'm sure you've got things to say. Right, let's talk about something slightly different then. A Kathleen Stock, OBE. You'll know a lot about Kathleen, an academic who, of course, came under fire because of her opinions about biological sex. If you don't know, look her up on a search engine. You'll find her. She's an interesting woman. She's the co-founder of the Lesbian Project. It's funny how you grow up, isn't it? And the term lesbian project doesn't have any meaning for you at all. But as a 12-year-old boy, if somebody said she's the co-founder of the Lesbian Project, you couldn't get to the television quick enough to listen to it. But, um, yeah, that's just me being an idiot. Anyway, she's on the Andrew Marr programme on LBC Radio. And they're talking about the amalgam or the term LGBTQ+, this umbrella term, which increasingly, because we used to hear about LGB, that's what we used to hear about when I was starting out my radio career back in the 90s. We used to hear lesbians and gays, and bisexuals, and then eventually it kind of, it broadened out a bit, it was lesbians and gays and bisexuals and transsexuals or transgendered people, fair enough. And then they added on plus and A and I and all of that. Now they've added in like asexuals and omnisexuals and herbisexuals and I, I made that one up. All of this bollocks, right? And she reckons this is unhelpful, Kathleen Stock. And this is an interesting conversation with Andrew Marr. Why is it unhelpful? What's wrong with it? There is something wrong with it. Right, here's Kathleen Stock. Honestly, yes, it's totally unhelpful. It's a nonsense uh, grouping and um, it seems to be more in... It, chasing money and resources and new campaigns, you know, and new sources of in- income. Um, I have no idea why polyamorous people or asexual people should be grouped with lesbian and gay people. I mean, fair enough. There should be a few, few, <laughs> a few, a few fewer colours in the flag. Well, we need to get a grip on what the real problems in society are. We need some evidence about where the, where the problems lie and, like, evidence of discrimination. You just can't be... Um, 
you can't rely on people to say, oh, yes, I'm discriminated against. You actually need some evidence of it. And we're encouraging a culture, especially in the LGBT world, where people are encouraged to say, I'm victimized, and then that's taken at face value. It can't, it, people cannot be equally victimized across the rainbow. It's just not conceivable. So LGB remains useful, LGBT. I think LGB is useful. I mean, I'm not, we are not stopping anyone else from doing anything, obviously, and there's some very useful LGB groups out there, including the LGB Alliance, but um, we are just saying, um, let a thousand flowers bloom. We have the right and um, the interest and the energy in forming an organization which represents lesbian interests in particular, and we encourage other groups to do so. Interviewed uh, the jazz musician Israeli-born Gilad Atzman some years ago, quite a few years ago, about identity politics and where this would end up. And we talked, jokingly, we joked, we took to Mickey, we talked about how eventually people in societies would continually, continually, they would continue to subdivide themselves into ever smaller groups with ever weirder, more weird and more wonderful terms to describe those groups. And each group would have one thing in common. All the groups would have one thing in common. And that is, they would all claim to be society's biggest victim. We talked about this back in 2015. <laughs> you know, I saw this coming many years ago. I saw it coming. More and more identity groups. More of them. A hundred new identity groups a week around issues like your sexuality and your, you know, how you, how you see yourself personally. And these would become ever more exotic, these groups. Smaller and smaller and smaller. And the common denominator, each group thinks, well, we've got it harder than anybody else. And therefore, we need to have protected status. And therefore, anything that is said against us that we don't like, it must be recorded as hate speech and something must be done about it. It's absolutely crazy, isn't it? 26 minutes past the hour. Here's a story that I... Um, grabbed for you on the website today. The website is very busy again, by the way. Do drop in on it during the day, richieallen.co.uk. Here's um, something I came across which I, I couldn't quite believe when I read the headline, but uh, I said we'll get into this today. And it's one of the reasons why Kimberly Isherwood is on the programme with me in around about 10 minutes' time. Schools in Wales. <laughs> might be, in fact, they're supposed to be teaching young children an analogy around something called a mixed berry gender fluid muffin. What the hell does that mean? Well, children as young as seven years old might be, the child might be, a mixed berry gender fluid muffin. Who said that and who heard that? Well, teachers were told that in a sex education resource pamphlet promoted by the Welsh Government. This pamphlet runs to 170 pages. It's been promoted to all schools in Wales, which is basically run by the Labour Party. And it claims, as we've become accustomed to hearing, that biological sex is not male and female, and that um, some kids want to change their gender pronouns. Some of them want to be agender, meaning they have no gender. Teachers were told that kids might be a mixed berry gender fluid muffin. The next thing is something I couldn't believe. I had to read it three times before I believed it. In this lesson given to teachers, they were asked to make batches of blueberry muffins 
to represent stereotypes of masculinity, raspberry muffins to represent stereotypes of femininity, and mixed muffins to represent gender fluidity. Then the teachers were told to break open the muffins and to go and stand alongside a corresponding coloured balloon in a room. But there are only two colours of balloons, blue and pink, no mixed balloons. Now the moral for the teachers to learn to understand is that they must experience what it feels like to go to a gender-coded corner that they might not identify with and what it feels like to be given a gender you might not choose. They were also asked to research species that challenged traditional gender roles. These teachers were told, go and have a look at seahorses, go and have a look at anglerfish, and do check out slipper snails because they can change between male and female. I don't know about you, dear listener, but the last time I went to a rock pool looking for a starfish, I didn't see boys and girls there. Nor did I when I was deep sea fishing last year in Cancun. I wasn't deep sea fishing in Cancun at all. So this is mad stuff and we'll be getting into this with Kimberly Isherwood in a few minutes time. It's absolutely do lally this as the great Sid Waddell, the great Geordie would have said at one time uh, back when he was um, in his pomp on Sky Sports darts. It is do lally. It is insane. Let's have a listen to Molly Kingsley. She represents a group called Us For Them, which looks out for the rights of children. She was speaking on GB News today, was Molly Kingsley, or was it uh, Talk TV, we'll hear in a moment. And she was, they were speaking about Miriam Cates, who is a, a Conservative Party MP, and Miriam Cates has called for a, an inquiry into what's going on in schools. The Prime Minister would only grant a review. Mad things going on in schools here's molly kingsley it's a wild wild west turns out that a lot of teachers and schools themselves don't have a grip on what's being taught and that's because many of these lessons are provided by external providers and the content in some cases is just deeply shocking and deeply deeply inappropriate for all children Mm. actually not just primary children So that's the background. And in response to that, government and Rishi Sunak in particular have come out and said they're going to order a review. Rishi said, I think he was quoted yesterday or this morning, wasn't in the paper, saying he wants to know what children are being taught. But a review won't have the power to compel people to testify. This is the problem. You see, I believe crimes are being committed against children. This isn't sensationalism. I'm not saying that for effect. I believe these are crimes, like real crimes. There are laws to protect children against being groomed. And whether a teacher is aware of it or not, they're grooming children by talking to them about these issues, about anal sex and about oral sex when these children are seven, eight, nine years of age. It's, I mean, that's, that's a crime, in my opinion. That, of course, is welcome. It's a good start. But I think we have to ask here how we got to a point where, you know, teachers and parents are in the dark about some of this very dangerous, some Mm. of us would say, teaching material. Yeah, and what's the kind of um, emphasis on that kind of material for? Because I wonder who's making those decisions. I mean, I know from just my own experience of my kids going to local schools um, in Sussex, you know, you don't really get given from the teachers a a rundown of what they're going to be taught in every subject. But surely there must be some kind of national curriculum that's set, which you could easily look up if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I'm not accusing parents of laziness. I'm not. It, It must be very difficult to be a parent. I don't have the experience. Most parents are working now. 
you know, mum and dad are working in most households. Time is at a premium, so I wouldn't dream of saying lazy. But I reckon it's pretty straightforward if you do want to find out what exactly is being shown to your children. All of this stuff must be available online in terms of the reading materials and the rest of it. So if you really want to know, parents, it shouldn't be too difficult to find out. More from Molly Kingsley. Well, you would have thought, but no, that's not. So what happened three years ago is that there was a review of what was thought to be quite out of date um, sex education guidelines for schools. Now, that review happened. It was implemented three years ago. There are guidelines, but the problem with these guidelines is, you know, I, I would say in a nod to be modern and trendy, they don't really place a limit on what can be taught. And actually, Amanda Spielman, who is the um, chief of Ofsted, the school's inspectorate, came out a few days ago and, you know, I think was as shocked as many of us and said, you know, the, the, the sex education lessons need to be grounded in evidence and reality. Now, mm. you would have thought that that was a non-controversial position, but it's not. And actually, when you see what's being taught, and just to give you a few examples, there's, there's some really deeply inappropriate sexualized content in this dossier that mm. Miriam Cates produced. So, you know, teaching children as young as 12, um, asking about, about oral sex, about anal sex, teaching primary school kids about masturbation. You know, is that really appropriate? Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, you have what really looks like very confused and quite pernicious gender ideology, quite extreme gender ideology. Extreme in, in the extreme. It's extreme in the extreme. We'll be talking to Kimberly Isherwood in about two minutes about that. This is your Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from the heart of Salford here, BBG Terrors. Always good to be with you. Keep the comments coming in. RichieAllen.co.uk comment live. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at RichieAllen.co.uk. Yeah, Kimberly Isherwood next on your Richie Allen Show. Here's Lou Reed. Welcome to the programme. Right, Lou Reed on the Richie Allen Show, hanging round from Transformer, of course. It's 24 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Let's welcome back to the programme Kimberly Isherwood. Kimberly chairs the campaign group Public Child Protection Wales, representing thousands of parents who oppose the Welsh Government's plans to force children to learn about sex and gender identity. For more on that, please go to publicchildprotectionwales.org. Kim, it's lovely to have you back on. How are you? Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate that. You're very welcome. No, thank you. You're doing me a big favour. Miriam Cates then stood up last week at Prime Minister's Question Time. She talked about that that story coming out of the Isle of Man. Awful story, really, about, you know, drag queens coming in to talk to kids about anal sex and oral sex, all these terrible things. And she asked for an inquiry. And Sunak wouldn't commit to an inquiry. He said he would go for a review. Now, I, I explained to my listeners earlier on the difference. An inquiry would have been much better. It's very serious. People would have to come and give testimony under oath. But is it positive anyway that Miriam Cates has raised this and that there is going to be a review? What do you think? I don't. I think this is lip service, personally, Richie. Um if you look at the history of how this has come in, you would see that it was actually the Conservative Party for England who brought it in. I am concerned with these reviews because a review doesn't get rid of the problem. It kind of puts a plaster over things. 
so they, they to, from my perspective, they look like they're doing something about it. I'm on, I'm with you on this. There should be a massive inquiry. If anything, it should be scrapped completely. You know, we've got too many third-party organisations who are selling their licences to schools. And we've got teachers then who believe, that, well, take this stuff at face value and they're delivering it in the classrooms, you know. So I believe that it needs to be scrapped and I believe an inquiry is the way forward, yes. So when when you say third-party organisations, can you explain that for our listeners? What what exactly is happening? Because uh-huh. teachers, we, we, we understand from listening to you when you came on the programme last year and back in January, that this isn't teachers sitting down saying, right, kids, we're going to talk about these very graphic descriptions of sex. Often this is delivered by a, a third party. Explain a bit more, Kim. Right, so what it is, the teachers are, um, it's their policy. They have to teach this stuff. They get an inspection. They have to teach um, PSHE, RSE, SRE. It's called different things throughout the UK. But they have to teach this stuff. So the teachers then, they go into um, third-party organisations like Stonewall, Bish, Brook, Twinkle, um, Jigsaw. There's lots of different organisations out there who they pay money to, to have access to their resources. They go straight online, they can access these resources, and they are delivering them at face value, you know. So there's no real, um, there's no critical analysis. The teachers don't have um, a, a broad context of knowledge on this subject anyway to properly analyse what they're actually looking at. And when the government is allowing you to use these third-party organisations, you're going to assume that this is good stuff. Now, this third-party involvement is problematic for parents as well. So this is the reason why parents aren't seeing what's being delivered because they have copyright licences. So we really are caught between a rock and a hard place and it's these third-party organisations that are feeding this into the schools. Let's, so um, let's come back on the copyright stuff in a minute. So as I understand this, Allow me 30 seconds to to kind of explain how I understand it, and you tell me if I'm wrong. So, as I understand it, this began with groups who claim to be looking out for the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. These groups lobbied the education department, or they lobbied politicians, to say that we need to get into schools to uh, change perspectives, to teach children that it's a big world out there with lots of different people in it. And if we do that, we will see discrimination. Um, we will see the, the cessation of discrimination. We will see a better world. Right? This is how I understand it. And that's how they got into the schools. They said there's a problem with discrimination against gays, lesbians, trans people and so on. We need to get to children early. And they lobbied hard um, to be able yeah. to get to schools. So this is how I understand it. Am I right so far? I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the right you track are, here. You are bang on, yeah. Bang on, yeah. Right, so that's about it then. So um, so how did it go from that lobbying then to them being, you know, paid for, as you described it, by schools to provide materials to hand to teachers to to, to, to instruct children? How did, did that happen, Kim? Because that's, I, I, don't, well, I can't get my head around that. So they've actually legislated for the introduction of this RSE um, in all schools all across the UK. And because they have to have it, 
We've got a group of teachers then who aren't qualified in these fields. It's a new concept to them. There's different ideologies. And that, that then paves the way, if you like, then for these organisations to come in. So we've got teachers who don't really understand what they're dealing with. They believe that they are calling in the experts. And um, this is what's happening. They, they, pay, they get a budget every year. They use our budget to pay for the licences. And that's how they have access then to this, and Kim, this, what we call education. And Kim, I'm guessing when these groups, Stonewall and others, who claim to represent gay and lesbian and trans people, I'm guessing when they went to lobby politicians, they weren't um, exactly uh, blunt about exactly what it is that they would be telling children in classes. I mean, I, I can't imagine they were telling politicians at the time, listen, we're going to introduce the concept of anal sex to um, primary school children. I can't imagine that politicians, if they knew that, would have legislated for this stuff. Or am I being naive? Right. I think it is. Um, oh, and that's it. This is, uh, this is the thing. No, they wouldn't have gone to politicians saying about anal sex and things like that. But there is a framework. There's a framework that the politicians used to bring this in anyway. And that framework speaks about masturbation from age naught to four. So even the talking about pleasure and masturbation, the politicians aren't off the hook because this framework was exclusively used in the decision-making. Thanks for so that. So even though they didn't access the lesson resources, these clues were in the framework. Thanks for that. And I wasn't um, in any way trying to give them a pass. It, it, it was just a, a question that was going through my mind. How could you vote for that, you know, if you knew exactly? I mean, some of the things that have come out, I mean, you've been, you know, advocating for the rights of children and for the families, uh, the parents of children for the last several years about this, publicchildprotectionwales.org. You're listening to Kimberly Isherwood, who, cha- who chairs that group. Um, representing so many parents who oppose the government's plans to force this on children. Now, Ofsted, is it Amanda Spielman at the moment? She seems to be developing an interest in this. Is that positive, do you think? Um, well, th- th- there are a few people developing an interest in it, but like I said, my we have been trying to raise the alarm for a long, long time now, but I feel so many people have raised the alarm that they, they are doing what, what I call lip service then you know there's too much investment in this there's far too much investment they've worked long and hard on it and the government are actually investing in these third-party organizations as well so we really are um tied up at every level um people are right to be concerned but how far are they going to go with this concern i simply do not know i said something before you came on and it was just a punt really kim i Look, I don't know the law around this and I don't know a, a lot about the law generally around these things. But I I wouldn't give a teacher a pass in terms of, like, you know, if a teacher says, this is uncomfortable, but it's the law and I've been given the materials. I wouldn't give them a pass because I believe in, in my heart of hearts, I believe it is a crime. No, a, a genuine crime, I'm not, not, not yeah. using it as a figure of speech, to... To, to, to put this stuff on young children and adults, I believe that's a crime, right? And I don't believe you get a pass just because, you know, the government says you've got to do it and here's the material from Stonewall. Now you've got to put this on, the, the you know, the desks of, uh, of, of the children. 
why are the teachers not screaming bloody murder about this? Where where are the unions to say, come on, you know, our teachers are not groomers. You're turning them into groomers, Kim. Well, that's a fantastic question. And that's one that we would love the answer for as well. We do know that in studies, 68% of teachers don't like teaching this kind of subject anyway. So where are those 68% of teachers? Why are they not speaking up? What is actually going on behind the scenes? We simply do not know. That is a fantastic question. We would love the answers for. And I, I mentioned to you today when I texted you earlier on, it, it seems to get more bizarre day in, day out. Some of the revelations about things coming out and congrats to the Telegraph for getting this information from Wales and it's obviously it's very important to you Wales the UK is very important to you but obviously you're, you're, you're a Welsh lady and you're representing Welsh parents of, of children this nonsense about mixed berry gender fluid giving teachers pamphlets to say that look at a child see a child as a mixed berry gender fluid muffin if I'm a teacher Kim and I'm in one of these lessons or one of these instruction classes the teachers go to I'm looking around for Jeremy Beadle or or for somebody like that to walk out and say you've been framed I mean this is mental stuff this I wonder are we is this one big massive joke you know I wish it was a joke, you know, but my, my question is, when you look at this lesson, so, you know, you've got the children mixed in their groups of their pink and blue and things like that. How do you know that's been a successful lesson? Because I don't, I'm rather confused by it. So how do these teachers know it's been an actual success, you know? To me, it's all about causing confusion. Um, that's, that's all it's about, it's about causing confusion. It's stuff children don't need to know. And you'll, you'll actually, if you read the Telegraph article, um, a spokesperson for the Welsh Government has said that they did not authorise this lesson content. Well, actually, they did. They did. And when the truth came out about this lesson content a few months ago, or back in October, they removed it off the Hub website. So the Welsh Government did commission this stuff. And this stuff has come from um, Cardiff University. It's come from Professor Emma Reynolds. And it's being used as um, activism packs for adolescents in America. Do you, do you imagine... Look, we, we believe, you and I, this is harmful for children. Are, is there any observable evidence yet that it is harmful for children? I hate to even say this, but... I would imagine that this might induce in children um, a negative reaction psychologically, you know, that a child might, God forbid, self-harm, that a child might become, you know, very depressed, the child might become very ill. And as bad as that is, maybe that's going to be a way out of this when a child is, is evaluated and, you know, an appropriate psychiatrist or psychologist says, listen, this is harming children, this, this stuff is having a physical and a physiological, it's having a, excuse me, psychological impact on them. I wonder, are we seeing this yet? You know, ch children coming home quiet, um, sad, well, fed up. Sick. We've actually got an expert witness on our case. with Dr. Miriam Grossman. She's, from a, she's a child psychiatrist in America. And they are about 10 years ahead of us there. She is seeing the damage and she's reporting it back to us. No, but these people who are carrying out these studies and showing us the evidence this is damaging, they are not being given the airtime. They're being silenced and just kicked into the long grass. We have seen young girls coming home from school 
Even the biology aspect is frightening them. So these young girls are being told that your vagina bleeds. Therefore, now they're being offered the opportunity to become a boy so they can skirt around having the vaginal bleeding once a month. Now, because they don't want that, they don't like blood. So already at a young age, the girls are saying, well, I want to be a boy because I don't want a period. So even the terminology they're using within the classroom is wrong because it's not you don't, your vagina doesn't bleed, you have a bloody discharge. It's completely different, you know. So every child is scared of blood. And we've, we've got the little girls now, they've been offered the opportunity to be a boy and they are taking that. They are looking at our route out simply because they don't want their vagina to bleed. I said this to you before, Kim. If, if we were to have a young child now there, there's no way they'd go to school. They'd be homeschooled. And that, yeah. isn't, that isn't the option for everybody because that's an undertaking. It comes with a cost. You know, somebody's got to stay at home and not work and everybody's broke in 2023. But I imagine it's something a lot of parents are considering, aren't they? Just pulling them out permanently. Oh, yeah. There's, there has been lots of children who moved from school and I know this all across the UK. There's home education groups popping up everywhere now. Um, but my concern is, you know, those children are safe. My concern is the children that's in the care system, the children who do not have a parent on the front line, you know, and those are the children most at risk. Those are the children being um, affected by this stuff, you know, and that's why we have to continue this fight. It's for them. Do you, before we um, part company today, thanks for your time, Kim, do you, does it um, intrigue you that these things tend to happen everywhere all at once. So while this is happening in the UK, it's also going on in primary schools in Ireland. It's also happening in France, so much so that a very well-known French journalist has come out strongly against this in the French press in the last couple of days. I think the term some people use on this programme is lockstep. That's a really intriguing thing that so many governments at the same time, Kim, begin to start yeah. to inflict these things on children. Do we have any idea as to why that is? No? Well, this is the United Nations Global 2030 Agenda, which is, says those words on the inside cover of their sex education framework. So they are on a mission to roll this out globally. It's already in 52 countries. We know that they threatened the poor countries um, with they'd cut their funding if they don't deliver this education. So we see in countries with no running water and they got sex education. Um, this is a global thing and people need to respond to it. This is why they're coming down hard on us now in the UK. We are one of the last to to get this um, in legislation, but they're coming down hard and fast on us now because they're losing their grip all, all across America, you know? Kim, it's publicchildprotectionwales.org. That's publicchildprotectionwales.org. If there's anything you'd like to mention before we um, part company today, anything that I've not brought up, I think this is about as serious as it gets. And I don't want to do that, you know, thing, or, or, or please think of the children. I'm not doing that bloody broadcasting thing. But it does, I mean, the, the term vulnerable group is thrown around all the time about everybody. And it's often yeah. thrown around, you know, and, and it sounds very benign when they throw it around like it's a good thing to protect vulnerable people when often it's disempowering people when they call people vulnerable. However, yeah. children are vulnerable. Oh yeah, they are vulnerable for their lives, you know. 
and we we have to protect them. And this way, you're using children's rights to empower them beyond capacity. You know, you can't empower a child in that sense. They 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 don't have the the um they don't have the development of their prefrontal cortex. They can't. You know, they don't have the ability to reason and weigh up risks and things like that. So we, as adults, responsible adults, whether you're a parent or not, it's our duty to look out and speak out for these children, you know, when we see these dangers facing them. I remember just before um, we wrap it up today, I'm a little bit older than you. I, I went to St. Saviour's Primary School in Ballybeg in Waterford City. Uh, I entered the school in 1979, I think. It was 79 or thereabouts. And through those primary school years, I was lucky it was a, it was co-ed, so it was boys and girls all the way through. And we would have played games like kiss chase and silly little things like that. You know, you, you, you tag a girl and give her yeah. a kiss, give her a kiss on the cheek or, or, or a girl tags a boy and all of that sort of stuff. And yet I read stories around the world about how children are being told that this is all wrong and, you know, not to touch one another and hugging is wrong and all this stuff. And I was musing over this with a friend of mine recently and he was shaking his head saying, how could it ever have gone in such a short space of time in terms of history from, you know, that very innocent time where teachers basically taught you how to read and how to write. And maybe yeah. you learned Welsh, of course, Kim. I learned the Irish language, to, you know, the, the, the Celtic languages. To go from that to this madness in such a short space of time, you know, it's crazy. It, and it has been a short space of time as well. It's, it's literally, it's like they flipped a switch, isn't it? They've been waiting for a long time to roll this out. But I'm pleased to say there is a really good opposition in the UK. And I do feel that we will make a massive dent in this soon. Well done, Kim. PublicChildProtectionWales.org. Until next, next time, even. Thanks for your time, Kim. No, thank you. Richie. Thank you very much. Speak Bye. again soon. Bye now. That's Kim, Kimberly Isherwood there on the line from Wales. She chairs the campaign group Public Child Protection Wales. There was a child arrested in a school in... If you look it up online, you'll find it. It's happened more than once. I'm thinking somewhere in the south. There was a young boy arrested for planting a kiss on the cheek of a girl in his class. Uh, junior school. What do they call it? Grade school in the States. Primary school, we would call it. Um, and reading about that again recently, it brought me back to us running around the playground in Ballybeg. Young boys and young girls. Five we, we, we joined that school infants. There was infants, then senior infants, and then first form, but we, we called it first standard. So we went in when we were four. I went in when I was four because of, I was born on the 31st of December 1974. So I went in when I was four, yeah. And um, five, six, seven, eight, the innocence of it. Unthinkable. The things are happening now, unthinkable back then. It is uh, four minutes to the top of the hour. Comment live, richieallen.co.uk I'll be reading your comments in uh, in a few seconds' time. Looking forward to hearing from you. And we will have a phone-in this week. I'm pretty sure it's going to be tomorrow night, so keep that in mind. We'll have a phone-in where you'll be phoning me and telling me what you think. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk yeah, mad times. Hi to Brambo. He says that uh, Kim's on the money about the global nature of these disgusting assaults upon children and families. I hope it's another symptom of the imminent collapse of the influence of the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and the corrupt oligarch owners of those institutions. We are indeed waking up now, 
and recognising what needs to be done to halt this obscenity. Uh, Pandora says, great interview to Kim and great work she's doing there. Um, Moreau says, when I was a child, every time I had bellyache from aged nine, my mum would say, it's probably my first time of the month. I used to hate the idea. I grew to hate the idea. And it was a tomboy until 14. I'm so glad in the 80s there was none of this craziness. I never wanted to be a boy, but enjoyed hanging out with boys. More straight up they were. Probably the Aussie in me. That's a good point, Moreau. Somebody might have suggested that maybe you were born in the wrong body. My better half is a beautiful French woman in her early 40s. When she was a a teenager, when she was in her early teens, when she was in primary school, she looked like George from the Famous Five. Uh, Tomboy, Caroline was. Total tomboy, played with the boys and um, dressed and looked like a boy. And eventually you grow out of that. Yeah, again, who knows what might have happened. Isabel says, Kim made a really good point about young girls wishing to be boys just to avoid some inconvenience that comes with the female body, the monthly cycles. She reminded me that when I was a girl, I was so horrified by the idea of the pain that came with giving birth that I used to wish I was a boy, says Isabel. A natural reaction, nothing to do with misgendering or that I was in the wrong body. If this was today, who knows how this small thought would have been interpreted. Lynn says a friend's eight-year-old granddaughter was taught or given a suggestion that caused her to question her natural friendship with girls. My eight-year-old grandson also asked his mum about gays. He questioned his childhood friendships too. Different schools, so it must be a common lesson and appears physiological to me. It's very cruel to cause them to question themselves in this manner, says Lynn. Craig says teachers can't speak up without being accused of being homophobic, transphobic, etc., which will be the end of their career. It's a good point, Craig. It wouldn't be called authoritarian without the top-down forced authority. He's right. Absolutely. But you think, if a few of them got together and said, listen, we're not all transphobes, or at least they cannot claim that all five of us or all seven of us are transphobes, right? That um, we've got to stand up. We, we can't inflict this on children. This is a crime, in my opinion. Craig says if children get ill from these teachings, there will always be some other corporate community body to profit from that. We are human resources, and we have been for a long time. Uh, Busy has put a photograph of something on the comment lives there. Thank you, uh, Busy. Rob says our school in London had the borough council come in to train the staff on these PSHE updates. We were told it's non-statutory and our leadership team didn't take it on. Rob says they were rolling their eyes throughout this training. Not happening in our places, Rob. I think many teachers and leaders are very aware of agendas at play and how to get out of getting involved with it. Well, that's bloody positive, Rob. Uh, Thanks so much for that. Uh, I really appreciate it. Wayne says it's a part of a deliberate agenda to sexualise children and confuse them regarding their gender. A first step towards gender neutrality and non-gender and non-procreating humans. The lessons and uh, the, the, the children are part of a sickening experiment in social engineering and indoctrination. The lessons will confuse and upset children and in Wayne's opinion they are reminiscent of experiments carried out by psychologists on children back 
in the 1960s. Thanks so much for that, Wayne. It's a longer comment, that, but I don't have time to read every word of it. Hi to Sam as well. Diane says, hi, Diane, good to hear from you. Loafers Pub in Cork was a gay pub. They solved the toilets issue. They had boys, girls, and those who have yet to decide. It was a good place for a night out, and a lot of straight couples went there too. I asked one guy why he told me, uh, sorry, I asked one guy why he told me no one is going to hit on his girlfriend and there were never fights there. But all of that was back in the day before the word went batshit crazy. I used to DJ at Gecko Gay Nightclub in Waterford City um, in the Glen. Yes, it was in the Glen back, (coughs) excuse me, back in the early 2000s. And it was a cracking night. It really was a cracking night. There's a man who ran it, Jerry, a lovely gentleman, gay man. Obviously, he decided we need to have a, you know, a gay club. And you do. You do have to have a gay club. I've said this a thousand times. We, we, we need gay nightclubs and lesbian nightclubs and trans nightclubs because if you're in a minority, like gay people are and lesbians are and trans people are, um, it's difficult to date, obviously, in a minority. Or it's difficult to go someplace where you think, I might actually meet somebody um, that I could, um, you know, get on with and maybe have a date with, right? So gay clubs are important, obviously very important. We never had one in Waterford. And Jerry, who did a bit of work at the radio station where I worked, he opened the Gecko nightclub, which was next to the Forum in Waterford, and it was just brilliant crack. He couldn't get a gay DJ that was experienced enough and knew what they were doing. Um, so I ended up doing it with a guy called Oliver Carroll, who was a radio presenter too. And Oliver wasn't gay either. But um, great crack it was. I always enjoyed doing it on Friday nights. The fun was uh, was just brilliant. Right, it's coming up for three minutes past the hour. We will be joined in a few minutes' time by none other than Sarah Habubi, who's a, an international speaker. She's a coach and an NLP practitioner. Now, she's been involved in something known as thinklocal.ie. Check out the website. A conference was... They ran a conference back in February, the end of February, to bring people together to build parallel systems to make the system we are living in now, which is totalitarianism, I would say, to make it obsolete, to work around it, to meet like-minded people, to not to build back better, no, but to build parallel systems where people are free and not slaves to 15-minute cities and social credit systems and all of that malarkey. So Sarah will be with me in a moment. In fact, I was introduced to Sarah by none other than Eamon, Eamon Blaney. If you're listening, Eamon, good evening. Hope all is well with you. It's uh, time for another tune. When we return, I'll have Sarah on the line, so I will. Yeah, Oriem and Watson, the frequency, Kenneth, it's seven minutes past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers in Salford. Thank you for uh, dozens, in fact, uh, more than dozens, hundreds of messages uh, for Kim Isherwood and what we were discussing in the first hour, uh, or SHE, or PSHE even, in schools here in the UK. It is happening all over the world. We'll return to that subject, no doubt, in the near future. I'm really excited to meet our guest this hour. 
Uh, big shout out to my fr- our mutual friend Eamon Blaney for making the connection. Really interesting lady, brilliant speaker, international speaker, coach and NLP practitioner. She's involved and has been involved in something called Think Local. A conference happened back in uh, February, well only a couple of weeks back, the 25th of February in fact, where people came together to discuss parallel systems. This is really interesting to me. You know, this has come up on the programme many a time. Can we live side by side with those who want to live in the dystopian, technocratic, social credit system way of living? If people want that, good luck to them. Can can we live side by side with them? Is it possible to do that? Is it possible to work around it? Well, let's um, talk with Sarah about that. Do check out thinklocal.ie. Delighted to welcome to the programme Sarah Habubi. Hi, Sarah. Welcome and thanks for coming on. Hi, Richie. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant to have you on. Is it Sarah or Sarah, first up? It is Sarah. No, you've got it right. Well done. Thank you. You're not too... I should have... Ordinarily, I would have given you a quick ring beforehand, but you're up to your tonsils work-wise. And I would have ironed that out, but um, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Let me ask you this before we talk about conferences and stuff. Um, Describe Sarah Habubi in December 2019 and tell me what relationship she has to Sarah Habubi in <laughs> in in the spring of 2023 well that's some question isn't it um sarah habubi 2019 was uh, minding her own business uh trying to run a business bringing up two children running a household um and just trying to be you know as good a person as i could possibly be and achieve as much as possible with with what i was you know the, the hours in the day um and, but I always suspected that the media was lying to me. I have to say, lying to us. Um, my, uh, as the, the surname probably is a bit of a giveaway, but my father is Iraqi and I grew up in Baghdad in the 70s. So I'm, I'm no stranger to tyranny. And uh, actually my great-grandfather actually fought against the British as well. Uh, and my father actually was arrested for campaigning against, uh, demonstrating against the government. So I think in my blood is something that is uh, very suspicious of authority. And certainly when uh, the states invaded um, Iraq, um, I knew because my grandmother lived there and I had family relatives there that the story was very different from what was being portrayed on the news. So really from fairly early on, I was very, I always kind of knew that, you know, what was being portrayed in the news wasn't wasn't the whole truth. Um, but I really didn't um, expect it to be to the extent uh, that it actually has been that uh, that the politicians and organisations and big corporations etc have actually not really been there for us at all. They've just been for their own their own profits and their own control and and uh, and power. It amazes me to this day because I was working in um, WLRFM in Waterford when September the 11th happened, and the fact that they persuaded people that Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi president at the time. <laughs> was supportive in any way of Osama bin Laden, somebody who he would have been as far away from ideologically as, there could, as, as he could possibly be. And everybody knew this. But the fact that they convinced people of this and then wasted, and I hate to say this, destroyed that great country and killed, what, three million people we think might have been killed in Iraq, more displaced? Yeah, it was half, half a million children. Yeah, was was included in that number, and uh, Madeleine Albright said that it was it was worth it was worth it, it was worth killing half a million children. Uh, of course, it was worth it financially for them. They got a they got in. They got they got what they wanted. You know, Iraq is uh, I think the second largest oil reserves at the time. I'm not sure if it still is. Uh, a very wealthy country in terms of uh, resources. So yeah, I've always been very suspicious of America. I've always been very suspicious of uh, of you know the British politicians and obviously Tony Blair. Um, you know, he he admitted 
that he lied. And yet he's walking around a free man. You know, he's a war criminal at the end of the day. Walking around. And we might talk about Tony Blair again before the top of the hour because he's central these days to some of the plans or at least some of the suggestions for, you know, vaccine passports and digital IDs and all of that. Sarah Habubi is our guest. It's great to have Sarah on. So, of course, then in 2020, when they were doing these dystopian, horrible, I'm terrible for using the term dystopian, but these awful things, you're shutting down society, wrecking the economy, harming children. Um, You were just as horrified as as me and everybody else, but uh, not entirely surprised. That is what you're saying, basically. Um, I think probably like a lot of people initially, I just brushed it off. I said, oh, they're doing it again. It was swine flu, you know, H1N1. I I actually lived in Asia when SARS-1 came out and and there was no, you know, there was no pandemic from what I could see. Um, There was a few people chose to wear wear masks, which I laughed at at the time, uh, especially on planes where they would then take their masks off to eat food. And I kept thinking then, (laughs) surely that's completely and utterly bonkers. Like you've literally, any kind of good it could do, you've just undone it. Um, but it really, you know, then, and then when Ferguson's modelling came out, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe this is serious. And I had a few friends who who were nurses and, and uh, you know, in the medical profession, and they kept saying, no, 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 it's really, really serious. And I was thinking, God, they must be seeing this on the, on the front line, so to speak, you know, that war terminology that they were using from right from the start. Um, but really two weeks in, and I just said, this is, this, there's something really, really strange here. And obviously NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, is all about language. Um, predominantly, and how language doesn't um, describe our worlds, but it actually creates our worlds. So the language was horrifying me because it was all designed to elicit fear and panic and absolute sheer terror. And I kept thinking, how is this the right approach? If this was a real pandemic, surely you would want people to be calm. You wouldn't want to flood the A&E. You wouldn't want people to be overwhelmed in terms of, you know, the doctor's surgeries. You would want to keep the schools open. You know, children's mental health is extremely important and their education. Um, You know, why were they crushing in particular small and medium enterprises? Uh, One of which was mine, got went completely off the cliff overnight. And I kept thinking, this is so weird. And I looked up the research and, you know, SMEs provide one million jobs um, in Ireland, or they did in 2020, with something like 75% of the of the revenue, the tax revenue. I kept thinking, this is so weird. Why are they not trying to keep the country going? Um, you know, and then I heard a great interview, which was with Tony Robbins. He interviewed uh, Michael Levitt, and that was in April. And I, I said, I knew it. And he talked about the diamond princess and the, and the modeling, uh, not the modeling, but basically the real world data versus the modeling, which, of course, in Ireland, we still haven't heard, you know, anything in terms of what their models were based on. And um, straight away, I just said, that, okay, there's something else going on. And I have to say, it wasn't until July 2020, when I heard a brilliant interview with uh, Sandy Adams, who was recently interviewed actually with um, James Dellingpole. And I, I kept thinking, who was that woman? Who was that woman? And then suddenly this this podcast appeared. I said, that's the woman. And she talked about Agenda 21. And it was an interview or a, a lecture she'd given in about 2015, 2016. And that was the first night I slept because I said, okay, I get it. There's something way, way bigger than just inept uh, and corrupt politicians here. This is something much, much bigger. And it made sense for the first time. You slept well that that night. Uh, Sorry to interrupt there. This is really interesting. Sorry, you slept better that night, but that's still an enormous thing to have to accept, isn't it? That this is about something far more than, as you said, a bunch of idiotic politicians blundering their way around trying to deal with, you know, a mild virus. There's something seriously you know, Orwellian about this. This is about taking society down 
a path of uh, you know down to this technocratic thing we, we'll talk about. That that's not easy to come to terms with either. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm not. I'm not saying I came to terms with it, but it, it closed a loop for me. And the open loop was, why are the politicians doing this to this country? I just couldn't understand it. And I kept saying, are they not worried about re-election? Because the way they're carrying on, it's as if they're not worried about re-election. And now we know, of course, they're not, because uh, they were selected, not elected. And it, it just made sense to me. And I said, okay, there's nothing I can do tonight. Like uh, that, that has just yeah. answered a massive question, which is, you know, what is going on? Well, you know, there's a, a very small group of um, ridiculously powerful and rich people who want to control us completely and everything made sense and once you understand that they they kind of despise us and they want us to be you know slaves well we already are slaves but they want us to really be enslaved to the point where you know we're completely digitally um trapped um everything makes sense you understand you know everything that's that's happened over the last three years which most people are still not joining the dots i still don't kind of understand why they're not asking questions and going how is how could we have had so much happen in three years but you did but you did and and when i hear somebody like you you're obviously very intelligent no patronizing going on here whatsoever you obviously are and um the fact that you did now admittedly again you talked about that experience of iraq and your father so i get that but the fact that you did, I mean, I've never said this during an interview, but I'm going to say it now. People were saying things to me on a radio show I presented in Marbella back in 2009 that this was going to happen. I thought they were bonkers, stark raving mad. <laughs> people like Jim yeah. Mars, God rest him, Jim Mars, David Icke, uh, people like, you, you know, the abuse David Icke has had over the years. Uh, Jordan Maxwell, God rest him as well, Jordan is dead. Maria Heller, great American people were saying, you know what, Richie, sometime in the 2020s, this is how the world is going to be shaped. And I listen to them because I'm a fascinated, I'm a fascinated guy. I love listening to people, Sarah. And I would bring them on, but I would go home to the swimming pool that night in the apartment complex and think, <laughs> as I subbed <laughs> back, they're, they're, they're bonkers, these people. Yeah, conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy yeah. theorists, that, that, yeah. that, that, that term is, you know, very powerful. And uh, now I love it. Someone calls me a conspiracy theorist. I go, just so just tell me which one of the theories, um, you know, are still theories and, yeah. and haven't become fact. Um, you know, so I wear my tinfoil hat proudly. Now, here's the question. We'll talk about the conference. So thinklocal.ie, listeners back home particularly, but also in the UK, you know, you might you get some ideas from, from the website. Go to thinklocal.ie. Here's the question. So you have a conference where you bring together people to talk about parallel systems. Is that an indication to me that you think some aspects of this agenda are inevitable? Okay. Um, I think maybe the way I can answer that question is through an analogy that basically came to, came to me last year, which was that this thing is a juggernaut. It's been beautifully built. It's been built over many, many years, you know, hundreds of years, actually. Um, they were waiting until they had the right technology, etc. But I do think they kind of went early as well. And this juggernaut has no brakes built into it. When they pressed go, when they were ready to just deploy this thing, um, it was just going to keep going. It was going to go downhill and it was going to keep gathering speed. And it is going to go off a cliff. So we all have a choice where to be. We can either be on the juggernaut and there are some people driving it and then some people think they're in the first class carriage being very clever, you know, making money uh, out of this and having, you know, powerful positions as a result of, of who they know and, you know, laughing at us, you know, like uh, supposedly Matt Hancock with this scaring the pants off people, you know, comment in his WhatsApp messages. Um, or you could be kind of trapped in a cage, you know, at the back thinking, I can't get out, I can't get out. Or you can be standing in front of it trying to stop it, which is where I stood really from late 2020. And for about a year, I was involved with all kinds of different projects, trying to raise awareness, 
Um, you know, I was I was a member of the um, Health Freedom Island Steering Committee, and we did a huge amount of work on the nursing homes and what happened in the early 21 when the vaccines were rolled out. And what happened, you know, one nursing home in particular had a 435%, you know, death increase um, within the first, you know, few weeks of the rollout. And we, we could just see this thing happening. And there's like a slow, you know, crane tra uh, train crash. Um, and I was just getting really, really exhausted trying. And I kept thinking, how can we stop this? And I just realized, you know, we can't. This thing has to play out. It has to go off the cliff. Um, but what we need to be doing in the meantime is building parallel societies. Um, not so that we're coexisting with this, because I don't believe it'll ever happen. I mean, they'll try and some people might love it and, you know, they'll go along with it. Um, but the reality is they need everybody to participate in their plans for it to work. We don't need everybody for, for what we want to do to work. We only need a certain amount of the population to actively start looking at how they can become resilient and build true, truly sustainable communities. You know, we can't all do everything. And I think some people feel really overwhelmed. They go, what can we do? You know, and one of my favorite memes at the moment is, you know, what can we do? Said 8 billion people. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. if we all come, we can't do it on our own. Absolutely not. But if you come together, you create really sort of close, tight-knit, you know, trustworthy communities. You've got a hairdresser, you've got a barber, you've got a doctor, a dentist, you've got farmers in particular, you know, with no food, um, you know, none of us will survive. And you've got people with all different types of skills, you know, within a community, you don't need a lot of people. And they don't, they shouldn't really be too big. You know, I, I, I was very um, lucky. We, we actually brought, uh, we've done all kinds of projects actually over the last two years. Uh, Matthias Desmet, we brought him over to do a book launch. And I love what he said, which was that we cannot and should not try to build one big mass on the other side. You know, that we all come together and we're all fighting this in the same way because egos will rise to the top. Everyone's got their own idea of how to do things. It's not going to work. And all that will happen is just another mass formation, but on the other side. Um, you know, what we have to do is really start taking responsibility for ourselves as much as possible, doing what we can do and finding people locally that can help us to basically survive, you know, what's, what's coming. Because the storm is coming. It's here. Um, and it's not too late. You know, people can do all kinds of things. They can start growing in their gardens. You know, that's very simple. We've actually just started doing that the last couple of weeks. You can find a local farmer to see who's, you know, selling direct um, or co-ops. Um, there's all kinds of things that we talked about in terms of, of money at the conference as well. For example, there's a, an organization called fairmoney.ie, which is, you know, an alternative way of trading value. Uh, we're looking at, you know, pushing to get a public bank, a community bank opened as well that can be out from underneath the control of the central banks, because eventually we will have some sort of currency, uh, but just not digital. And, um, you know, there's just so many things that people can do and not one person has all the solutions. And we certainly don't have all the solutions. We wanted to bring people together who had already found ways, um, even, you know, since before 2020. Uh, one of our farmers uh, was absolutely amazing, a guy called Brendan Gwynnon, and he is totally off grid. He has 26 acres. He doesn't even have electricity uh, from the grid. He actually uh, produces it himself through um, hydro. He actually has his own level system that he actually generates electricity through. Just incredibly creative um, people. And they don't have, they don't use artificial fertilizer. So even when that all dries up and doesn't come here, you know, there's so many ways that we can solve the problems um, that they're throwing at us. And it doesn't have to be big and it doesn't have to be this huge, big centralized um organization essentially in actual fact i love catherine austin fitz's uh statement which is the revolution will not be centralized 
Yeah, what a, I know Catherine, she's been on the programme many times over the years. This is fascinating stuff. And you were finding, Sarah, that people from the medical professions and people from financial professions, they're expressing interest in this. Like, they see what's coming down the line and they're saying, right, tell us more, Sarah. Absolutely. We had, we, well, they tried to, to uh, they tried to cancel us, of course, like anyone else that's trying to do something that's counter-narrative. Um, there seems to be a very well-organized group of people who, I don't think they're very big, but they are organized and they do uh, keep an eye on all of us that they know are, um, you know, not in favor of what's happening. Let me guess, and let first, me guess, Sarah, let me guess, you're a far right type, are you? Is oh, I'm a Nazi, apparently. Right, yeah. right, yeah, because yeah, yeah. because no, no, you don't that's, that's... because you don't swallow the medicine and <laughs> you don't take at face value what you've been told by your media. So therefore, you must be nothing other than a Nazi. It, you know, I said on the program earlier on, and you're the expert in language. Isn't it good that these terms are thrown around all the time? Because don't they somehow become weaker? You know, well, they do. They 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 lose their power completely. Yeah, they they really do. You know, I mean, conspiracy theorists. I mean, I know that in 2020, you know, I live in a small town in Ireland, and you know what that's like. Um, everyone kind of you know knows everybody, yeah. and I didn't wear a mask, and I kept thinking, you know, they're all going to think I'm completely bonkers, and you know, I run a business where I help people and I work with kids and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it, I was worried, but I kept thinking I'm more worried that if I do wear one. Um, you know, and then when it all when it all comes out that this is all rubbish, you know, that they'll look at me and and, and have a worse opinion, actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, from that point of view. So I was kind of really forward thinking at the time. And also, I, I, some days I thought, oh, just wear one. I just kind of not have to face the hassle of the of the little uh, fat uh, supermarket security guy kind of waddling after me, uh, trying to get me to wear one. Um, but I kept thinking, no, no, you know, this is really, really important. And uh, just sort of standing up and just standing in your own shoes and just in your own integrity was was really really important for me to to do for 2 years but again you know that's okay to do on your own but you really do need uh the community around you but yeah the names the name calling uh, i'm sure that i was called every name under the sun you know and i was accused because i went to a rally in september 2020 by one of the local business owners that i was going to be responsible for people dying because i stood outside a dublin you know outside the uh, customs house and dublin and they knew that. The thing is, sorry, many of them believed it. And again, you've done a great job. I've been looking at some of your interviews online in preparation for today. I properly prepare me, Sarah. <laughs> There's no messing around on this programme. But but you, you get why so many of our friends and neighbours. I went to school with, um, they're men and women now, St. Paul's Community College. And, and many of these people did far better than I did academically. And they went on to have great jobs. And yet they've absolutely fallen for this. Like I, I came across a tweet today from, I, I can't mention him, it would be terribly wrong, from an old school pal from, from, from sixth year, St. Paul's. He went on to do a really good leaving cert, went on, went into the law. And he was talking in a tweet recently about he was looking forward to digital IDs and stuff. That this is a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think people think this is progress and yeah. they don't really that in actual fact we're going back to a, a feudal system, only this time it's digital. You know, they really, you know, it's a convenience. And we've been seduced, haven't we? We've all been seduced, you know, by easier, quicker, more convenient, you know, no hassle. But we, you know, what they want us to be fat, lazy and stupid. That's exactly what they want. They want us to be, you know, oh, can't be bothered. Um, I was listening to Sandy's um, interview and she was talking about the, the whole digital ID in the UK 
and how you know the government has this um sorry what well, i can't remember what it's called you know when it's on the government website and you can go and you can basically download the form and you can fill it all in and you send it to your mp and she said it would take at least two hours to fill this form in yeah. in terms of pushback against the digital id and she said the reality is people are still working they've got you know, full-time jobs, kids, etc. So they met, they're making it as difficult as possible. But, you know, freedom, <laughs> our freedom is worth fighting absolutely tooth and nail for, you know, and it's not easy. It's not easy to stand up, and especially, you know, in Ireland, you know, I think we have a pandemic of oh, what will people think? You know, I think it's social death that people are more afraid of than anything else. I can't remember the name. It was in Stanford. The experiments where people were encouraged to give people electric shocks. You'll know this. Um, yeah, the Milgram experiments. Well, yeah. thank you, the Milgram. Thanks for, for that. It escaped my mind completely there. But we, look, we haven't seen it as drastic as that. But we've seen people, I'm, I'm here in Salford and um, I've lived in Manchester as well. We, we, we knew people around here who were phoning up the police to say that their neighbours had too mm. many people over. Imagine yeah, that. I mean, I think I think Matthias Matthias Desmond's book, uh, you know, the psychology of totalitarianism is is really a very important read, um, because it really helps to understand how is it. I mean, everyone's asking the question: how how are they not seeing this? How are some people still not connecting dots? How are people so you know they went from being very distrustful of politicians to now they believe the politicians has their absolute best interest at heart. And especially here in Ireland, when we, we have barely elected politicians, we've got a coalition, um, you know, so there's no opposition whatsoever. Tell me this. Uh, Sarah Habubi is our guest, by the way. We've been talking about solutions and she's involved in uh, Think Local. Go to thinklocal.ie, bringing together people from all different types of backgrounds, all areas of expertise to, to build communities, to build parallel systems, to make the current paradigm obsolete, to help people navigate this because, as Sarah said, it is a bit of a juggernaut. You know, a lot of this is going to happen. I've said this myself on the programme in the last year or so and I've taken a little bit of flack but I don't mind, I've got thick skin. I've said that we might have to accept that some of this is going to be here with us maybe for a few years before it gets better and if that is the case, well, what can we do um, to cope with that, and what you're doing is perfect, I think. Thinklocal.ie, Sarah Habubi is our guest. Um, I have a theory, uh, and my theories are for the birds most of the time, but these, <laughs> these WhatsApp messages that Isabel mm. Oakshot found, no, not found, handed to her by Matt Hancock, I don't believe this, and mm. given to the Telegraph, I, I, the story stinks, and I'll tell you why the story stinks, because it looks to me... Like, the messages are being used to portray Matt Hancock and a few others as a bunch of idiots. And it could be argued, this is just a theory, that this will then be used as the justification for giving the World Health Organization full control over future pandemic planning. Call me a cynic. Oh, I have no doubt. I, 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 I'm totally in agreement with you. They do seem very fake, actually, to me. Yeah. They seem very contrived. And um, the question is always, you know, why now? You know, why were they released now? The language is, is very, you know, um, yeah, they come across as basically a bunch of public schoolboys um, who were just kind of buffoons and just a bit kind of, oh, a bit kind of ditzy. And, uh, oh, dear, oh, whoopsie, you know, we, yeah. we've made these mistakes. And, um, you know, um, as someone said in the uh, the Brown Institute um, article recently, you know, mistake is when you bump into someone with a little coffee all over them. You know, a sustained... Uh, attack, co you know, cognitive warfare being used, fifth grade cognitive, fifth generation cognitive warfare um, against people to keep them in fear unnecessarily. 
um, you know, it was not a mistake. This is all calculated. This is all planned. You know, they, I don't think that they all knew exactly when was when it was going to kind of happen. And exactly, you know, I think they've just been given instructions and they're just following it. And you can see on the World Economic Forum website, you know, which the politicians are bought because they're on there, you know, and you see them on stage with them. And you just think, you know, they are all performing a role and they're given their scripts. And the fact that, you know, you were talking earlier to that lady about, the whole gender ideology, you know, it's suddenly it's it's erupting everywhere. And you're thinking, well, where does this come from? These seem yeah. to be just dropped in from the sky. You know, where is the evidence that parents and teachers and students were clamoring for trans ideology and pornography to be brought into schools? You know, where where is that? Where, where are the reports to say that parents were at their wits end, you know, desperate for teachers who are qualified to teach a subject uh, and not uh, medical or mental health professionals to be divulge, you know, instructing their young impressionable children on this information. You know, we need to go from the grassroots up. We need to look at what people really want. And, you know, I suppose, I don't know, everyone has their own circles and they see what they see. But for me, I'm definitely seeing a big pushback, particularly around the gender ideology. I think they've really crossed the line, you know, very, very too quickly on this one. And they've been trying to get, for the, you know, go after the kids for years. You know, we've seen that. Um, but I think they've just overstepped the they've they've bitten off more than they can chew and they're going really fast. And to me, this juggernaut is just gathering so much speed and it's going downhill and they're throwing everything at us. But every single time they do something new, more people go, uh, hang on a minute. That, that, like, what, that makes that no sense whatsoever. And, start, uh, and they start asking questions yeah. and, and you just have to start asking questions. That's the place to start. Um, and that's what I was doing for, you know, from February to July 2020. Every single night I was going, what is going on? And it what takes courage. What is going on? It takes courage. By the way, um, a very good friend of mine, Jean-Anne Crowley, um, is very interested in this conversation. And she mentions to me that um, the chief feature writer at the Irish Daily Mail, a guy called Philip Nolan, referred to your uh, conference, which to me, I mean, look, I, I do as much as I can maintain, as much objectivity as I can. I look at what you were doing and, and, and my journalistic brain is I'm trying to poke holes in it. I'm thinking, well, you know, is this a load of L nonsense and what are they going to do? But I like what it is you're doing, having had a look at it. I think you're bang on. Parallel systems are needed. This is going to be with us for a while. And it's all very organic and genuine. And you've got people coming to have a chat. And this is just to give you an idea for our listeners. Uh, listen to this, dear listener. Listen to, to, to the evil of the press in, 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 in our, in our country. I haven't heard this yet, so go for it. He, he referred to, um, if you've got children, kick him out of the room for five seconds. He referred to Sarah and Think Local as that wank fest of superstition and ignorance. Now, I've, I'm a real journalist, Sarah. I've worked at every level. I've worked national media. I've worked local media. I've produced award-winning radio programmes. I'm not picking myself up. I am a proper journalist, right? Um, this, this is an inversion. A real journalist is like, ah, there's a meeting, is there? They're a bit weird. Mm. Do you know what? I'll go along. I'll go along. And I'll have a listen. And you never know, you know, I'll see what they're saying. There might be an article in it. But no, you get this from afar, don't you? I'm not going to show up and take a pen and notepad with me and speak to people. No, I'm just going to slander people from, from afar. Crazy, huh? Yeah, I love it. That's hilarious. And it's because they're literally just projecting themselves. Like what? Everything, every single thing they accuse us of is actually what they're doing. 
Well, hang on, hang um, on, and hang I, on. I just, and I just laugh, you know, because that, that's exactly what they're doing. The superstition, superstition with the masks work, superstition that, you know, the government cares about you, superstition that the vaccines, you know, will stop transmission and, right. you know, stop yeah. people from dying. You know, that's all stupid. That's the superstition. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm a complete idiot. Jean-Anne was referring to the meeting at the Custom House, which you mentioned. That one. That's, oh, right. Yes, yes. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. She says, sorry for the misunderstanding. But look, that's the sort of thing anyway. The point still stands. This is what they do, these clowns. Rather than go along with a bit of um, curiosity. I mean, when I was starting out in local radio, I went to everything, uh, Sarah, you know. I went to all, you know, the Socialist Workers' Party. I went to the Workers' Party. I went to see Sinn Féin, just to sit down and listen. Um, But not to go there to try and, you know, demean them or to insult them or to go back to the station and to uh, libel them. No, I I wanted to know what they were saying and was there anything interesting in it. But um, the media is truly perverse, isn't it? We have no fourth estate. No. You know, the fourth estate has absolutely been hollowed out here. Um, You know, RTE is, uh, well, I had to just switch off, you know, every mainstream channel, you know, in September 2020 for my mental health. Um, Because it's very hard to not be impacted when you're hearing what they're saying and the level of fear porn that was still being pumped out, you know, months and months later. And, you know, I mean, even, you know, recently I, you know, I was walking through town and I could see some, you know, a couple of my friends, one was driving through town with her little daughter. Both of them had masks on, you know, and I just, I'm so, I feel so angry and I feel so, um, you know, upset, especially the children, you know, I, I have two, and this has really impacted them. We've, we've had to completely change our life to be able to protect them in whatever way we could from this. Uh, but it's not easy. It's really not easy. And Can you I just have you? to keep going. As you know, when you find yourself in, going through hell, you just keep going. And I think, you know, our resilience in the fact that we got cancelled twice uh, by the hotels for the conference, you know, really showed um, that this is, that we're over the target. We yes. are the target because we're yes. over the target. Amen. It tells you. Know, you and and, I, and yeah. I just, I, it actually fueled us. It actually made us more determined to run it. And it actually, you know, at the conference, we explained to people what had happened because obviously we had to keep the final venue actually secret <laughs> until the, you know, this is like, uh, no, the 1600s, the penal laws, you know, having to have a, a secret mass away from, yeah. you know, the, the, the British. Um, having to have hedge schools. I mean, we're, we really are back to that time. And, and I'm very disappointed that here in Ireland, so many of the Irish people are not seeing the parallels, you know, um, that they've bought into this um, hook, line and sinker. It's back you know, to the really. uh, NLP again, isn't it? Sarah Habubi is our guest. Thinklocal.ie. Can I ask? You don't have to answer if you don't want to. It might, um, it might not, not, that, not that it might be sore, but it might stir up, you know, some bad memories. I mean, you mentioned looking after the children. Were there any specific measures that you um, took to kind of shield the children from the dangerous rhetoric that was being thrown around? Hug yes, granny I and took, you could kill her. I, 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 I took my um, older son out of school. Did you now? Mm, so he had attended an online school. And he's actually just finishing and he'll be heading off to university in September. And, uh, you know, very proud of him. And he's really... Um, you know, he's very dedicated and passionate about what he wants to do and very ambitious. Um, and it wasn't easy. We had lots of different, you know, trials and tribulations. We tried this and we tried that. And um, but he could not breathe with the mask on. And I tried to get an exemption and couldn't get an exemption. And he said he was sticking his head under the desk um, to get a breath um, and then 
coming up back up again and he was feeling dizzy and he couldn't answer the questions and he had to sanitize his hands, you know, which were destroying his hands. And after four and a half days, I said, I'm done. Well done. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not putting you through this that I won't wear one. And, you know, if we can't get you, um, you know, an exemption and he didn't really want an exemption. He wanted everyone to be not wearing them. Um, he didn't want to stick out like a sore thumb. He didn't want to have to face the kind of, you know, bullying that would go along with that. You know, people kind of calling him names. This is not his battle. He was really young at the time. Uh, and my younger son was in primary school, so it wasn't as big a deal. Um, but, um, but his education was, was, was really, you know, um, the teachers, I was wondering what on earth they were doing because we would get a, a list of what they had to do on a Monday morning, um, emailed in and then no further contact in the following Monday. And I just thought, wow, this is really showing. And, and I'm sure there are some and there are some great teachers out there because I know them and I, I have friends who are teachers. But I just thought and in general, you know, the teachers let us down, the doctors let us down, the nurses let us down. All of these people, you know, should have known better. And they were so afraid of putting their head above the parapet that they were willing to sacrifice our children. And that is unforgivable. It is unforgivable. And we're seeing it again now with the PSHE education materials in in British schools. It seems that teachers are, some anyway, seem to be reluctant to put their hands up and say, this is grooming. I will not participate in it because they fear the avalanche of abuse, you are homophobic, you are terrible, you're a bigot, and maybe you shouldn't be working. Full stop, cancel culture. Again, th- these things, you know, I, I was warned about these things back in 2009. I didn't believe it until the mid part of the last decade when I, when this programme began back in 2014, I started to see it for myself, what was going on. You know, the idea that you could be destroyed financially, that your career could be ended, all because you have an opinion. Here yep. we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and, and the thing is, it's really interesting because it's actually, um, and I know you've interviewed her um, as well, which is Melissa Chimay, and she, she did a, a talk the other night. And, you know, she said it as well when I interviewed her, which is, you know, people who are, are good tend to be passive, passively good, whereas people who are evil tend to be actively evil, you know, and it's time for us to be actively good. And to really put that kind of goodness and that community spirit, you know, together and to say no, and to just stand our ground. And, you know, to I'd love to, you know, teach people how to flatten the fear. Um, because there's only one certainty in life is that, in, you know, none of us are going to get out of this alive. No. It's what, it's what we do between now and our last breath that counts. You know, it's not being safe and hidden behind, you know, a, a locked door or a mask or, or, you know, the internet, you know, being able to be these keyboard warriors who are going out there. Um, you know, denigrating people, and they don't have the courage. I mean, interesting enough, of course, no one actually turned up to the event. Um, well, we were very clever, also how we <laughs> how we got people there. But if they had had an ounce of of uh, you know intellect of any kind, uh, or creativity or intelligence, you know, they could have found it, uh, and maybe they did. But they don't have the courage. They don't have the guts because they're not really driven by their convictions. It's just it's a mental you know illness that they have. Um, you know, kind of screeching and screaming at people and yelling names at them. And they never actually answer any questions and they never provide any evidence. Um, you know, they just they just revert to name calling. And you know that the minute name calling um, has been you know involved in their so-called uh, discussion or their debate or their argument, you know, that it's hollow. Game you know, over. they are they're a, a meaningless mass, you know, of people. They're empty at the end of the day. Here's a question for you now. Before I ask you this, though, because it is a, a little bit of um, kind of a sideline, but 
Go to thinklocal.ie, building parallel systems to make the current globalist system obsolete. Real solutions. Follow Sarah on Twitter. It's at Sarah Habubi. That's H-A-B-O-U-B-I, at Sarah Habubi. You'll find her very quickly if you put her into any search engine. Give her a follow there. Look, because I've been doing this for years, when I say doing this, I mean listening to people. I'm not um, a researcher. Well, I do research, but it's it's usually on my guests and who they are. But the actual information is researched by others, as I mentioned some names earlier on, and and, and people like you. Um, it It is apparent to me, and I should say it could be argued, because that's the right way to phrase this, that um, there are no political opponents to this overseas. I do not believe that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, even though Russia has a historic, um, I I believe, legitimate grievance against the West because of promises made at the end of the Cold War that NATO wouldn't keep encroaching on Russian territory. All of that is true, but I do not believe the Russian president is in any way uh, an opponent of what's happening. And if he's not controlled by the same people who control Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and Leo Varadkar, he is controlled by other entities, and I mean people, who are working to the same totalitarian goal. That's what I believe, and I get hammered for it because, oh, Vladimir Putin, oh, look what they're doing to him. What do you think on that? Ooh. <laughs> um, I think that the whole thing is very nuanced. I, th- I think that, again, they've just divided us. You know, Either you're with Putin or you're with yes. you know, Zelensky. Yeah. And the reality is you can be with neither of them you can understand that you know that area in particular has a very long history yes. uh, that is very complex and it's not simple and i think the fact that they are throwing billions and billions of you know our taxes and you know america and you know wherever else in the world you know at zelensky to to fight this you know uh, proxy war essentially um it does make me suspicious i think that if you look at what the brics countries are doing which is to you know, have gold-backed, uh, some sort of gold-backed currency with a basket of commodities and, and real value, you know, that they are, they do seem to be looking at a multipolar system rather than a unipolar system. I don't know, I've heard I've heard things from both sides and I, I'm just going to sit on the fence here and say I'm, I'm kind of undecided. And for me, I just have to bring myself back to, you know, where I am, where I'm living, what's right in front of me and what I can do. And there's nothing I can do about that. Well You said. know, there really isn't. No, well said. And I'm very open-minded on it. And I'm absolutely open well, to the our, idea I might one, be one wrong. One of our speakers, actually two of our speakers, uh, Matthew Errett um, and his wife, actually Cynthia Chung, flew over from uh, from Canada. Um, and they are um, part of the Canadian Patriot uh, website and they're the editors and producers. And they also have the Rising Tide Foundation and also Alex Craner, who is um, has written books about... Well, he's a hedge fund manager and he's written, well, there's, all his bios are actually on the website. If you actually look at the thinklocal.ie, you can see who our speakers were. Um, and lots of their their podcasts and interviews that they've done have talked about, um, you know, the BRICS countries and the and the multipolar approach and, and what could be happening. And again, it's not black and white. And I really, I'd be very reluctant to kind of, you know, kind of go down that road because... Yeah. I could just say something that then just negates everything else that I've said. Oh yeah, well look, on, on this programme you couldn't, because I like to believe our listeners are, are are fully understanding of the fact that there are no binary choices. There are no yeah. absolutes. And no, listen, exactly. to, 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 to finish on that thread, the, the best, I brought this up with uh, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, former US Assistant Treasury Secretary under Reagan, 
And I said to Paul, and Paul is very supportive of what Vladimir Putin is doing. He, he says Putin is backed into a corner. He can't do anything else other than what he is doing. And Paul lays the blame squarely at Washington, D.C. and at London. But when I put it to Paul that they might all be working for whatever technocratic agenda might be coming down the line, Paul was brilliant and very sage. He's an octogenarian, Paul, very wise. He said, Richie, if you're right, we're screwed. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Just leave it as that. Well, and, and he doesn't yeah, agree with me. He I doesn't mean, agree. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that, that that's a very good point, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't want to be all doom and gloom either, just to go, God, if anyone is in that kind of position of power, then they are. Yes. Or they're all on the on the same side. I mean, I think the only argument I may have that they're all on the same side is that if that was true, then this would all be done. I think I think it'd be done. I don't I don't think they'd be going through the farce of, of the Ukraine war. I don't think they would they would need to. I think it would just, you know, it just kind of happen. And I do think that, uh, you know, when you look at the Minsk agreement and things like that, you know, that were completely disregarded, it was like a holding place, you know, until they could get, you know, Ukraine and to NATO. You're thinking, hang on a minute. But, you know, all the world's a stage. All the world is a stage. Sarah Habubi is our guest. We've got about five minutes left on this. Time has absolutely flown uh, by. Listeners are asking me about, it's hilarious in one sense, I mean, what you described, I mean, you know, the, the going back to the penal times, the masses, you having to release details of where you're meeting at the very last minute. I mean, it brings back some memories. A few years back, David Icke was due to speak at Old Trafford. Um, you won't know this. And um, a lot of tickets were sold and on the morning of the event Old Trafford cancelled and said get out now there are there are hundreds of people coming from all over the country and from overseas and in the end we managed to get a venue but uh, you've been through this yourself um, and the reason I mentioned this is because people are asking me what about think you know local conferences in the very near future is there any news on where people can actually meet up with you sarah and others and what about this movement um happening here in the uk yeah absolutely i mean we had um representatives from the world council for health and from children's health defense were at the conference as well and um world council for health have actually set up uh, a platform called source s-o-u-r-c-e and that is, again, it's, it's a decentralized system to find your local suppliers, healthcare, um, you know, whatever you need. It's to start getting people signing up to, you know, and to create this as a really big platform so that it's lots and lots of nodes rather than one system. It's all, you know, to do with where you are. Um, and we, we launched that over here as well. So they can actually have the Irish um, suppliers and services can actually sign up to that as well. Um, if people actually... Uh, could help us out it would be great so we've actually we, we've posted the recordings of the conference on the website and it's for a very small fee and the reason being is that we are actually raising funds to do another event in the summer and um, we've actually got two events because i was also involved in the health conference last year where we brought robert malone and ryan cole and kat lindley and uh, richard urso and uh, Molly James and uh, Mary Bowden so i can't remember all, all of them now but it was about 10 11 doctors uh, Tess, Tess Laurie, and again, we had to do all that in secret um, and we brought them over. And that was that was the beginning, really, of, of kind of people sort of demanding more, kept saying, you know, when are you going to do something else? When are you going to do something else? Um, but the reality is 
we want other people to do this too. We need, and we need help. You know, if anyone's out there who wants to volunteer their time, if they're a digital marketer or, you know, things, especially the digital world, the digital side of things, um, we all work, we all run our own businesses. And this is something that we have done, you know, really, it's been a, a labor of love and, and a kind of things we're really, really passionate about. Um, we've been accused of this as being a big kind of, you know, far right fundraiser. Um, we just about uh, covered our costs. Uh, we kind of had to put our hands in our own pockets uh, to do some of this as well. And people were balking at the price. So I kept saying, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. People just don't realize how much it costs to put an event on. And we wanted to do it as professionally um, and as big and as entertaining uh, as possible. You know, you've got to capture people's imagination. You've got to give them, you know, something that when they walk away, at the end of the day, they really feel uplifted and empowered and they have some solutions that they themselves know, yeah, that's the right solution for me. So if they, if they, you know, sign up for the video, they'll be put on our mailing list. Um, if they want to contact me, um, they can contact me at admin uh, at lo thinklocal.ie. And um, yeah, look, we're more than, than happy to kind of uh, listen to people. And we, but we don't want to be leaders because we, you know, we don't want to be the people kind of going, this is what you do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what the solutions all are. I'm, I'm searching just as much as the next person. And I'm just curious. Um, and I, I just do what I feel called to do and what I feel passionate about. And everyone has to do that. It was uh, great meeting you today. Thanks for giving us your time, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And thanks, of course, to Eamon Blaney for making the connection. Uh, thinklocal.ie Sarah Abubi has been chatting with us on uh, Tuesday's Richie Allen show I always do this if there is something you, you, you've just thought that you should say 20 seconds before we wrap it up I'll give you the final word Sarah but uh, yeah brilliant to have you on thank you thanks Richie thanks for having me great stuff and it's thinklocal.ie and follow Sarah Habubi on Twitter it's at Sarah Habubi H-A-B-O-U-B-I thanks to her and thanks again to Eamon the time is coming up for seven minutes to the top of the hour Lynn came on to say yes the world's a stage and a pantomime is playing oh no it's not oh yes it is says Lynn Richard said there's a weekend in Cork in May David says she's excellent is Sarah I'll be sharing this show to be sure you should share every show David I mean this is the best radio show in the world ever isn't it he says tongue firmly in cheek Diane says parallel systems as suggested by Vaclav Havel it is the only way out of this mess coexisting can you though that's something we might explore in another show real soon will will, will we be allowed next time Sarah comes on we might get into that you, you've got to expect some pushback from the architects of this agenda uh, live in your own ecosystems and your own communes, will you? Oh no, you won't. Might be the case. Might be what's said. Um, I don't know. Scaramouche says, why do Tory MPs get to host news shows? Have you been listening to me lately, Scaramouche? I've only been banging on about this for years. Uh, I'm not being sarcastic, by the way. Yes, it is absolutely... Well, it's unimaginable. It was unimaginable to me that you would turn on a news channel, a 24-hour news channel, and you would find a Conservative Party MP interviewing another Conservative Party MP. But we've had that lately, with Jacob Rees-Mogg interviewing Lee Anderson. Madness. Madness. It's uh, coming up for four... It is four minutes at the top of... I've already said that. I'm just looking at the time, you see. Hey, listen, um, I, we, we'll, we'll either do a phone-in tomorrow or Thursday, one or the other. I'll let you know in the morning. So do check out, uh, check richieallen.co.uk first thing tomorrow, and I'll let you know. 
And if we do do a phone in, it's all being sorted out. The communication system is back up and running. It's beautiful. It's working beautifully. So it could be tomorrow. If it isn't tomorrow, it'll be Thursday. But it might be tomorrow. Why am I not making a decision? Well, because I might have a guest lined up for tomorrow. I'm not sure. But if I don't, phone in. We'll have a bit of crack, you and me, a bit of a chat and all of that. But if not, it'll be Thursday, okay? Have I brought in the... No, I haven't. <laughs> Jesus, Richie. You're not much use to me alive, are you, Richie? No, not today, I'm not. No, one of those bloody days. I've been having one of those bloody days. So I have, yeah. Okie doke, lovely. Right, yeah, I'm going to love you and leave you. Thanks for all your messages, by the way. Kiki came on to say what a beautiful and articulate guest Sarah is. Thank you, she says. He says, she says. Kiki is a he, I do believe. And Cookie says the prison experiment is also relevant about human nature. Yeah, that's right. When those people were told to give somebody an electric shock. Milgram, that's right. Give them a shock. They've got an answer wrong. And they did it. They weren't really shocking anybody. It was all set up, of course, but they actually did it, didn't they? Eh? I remember being lectured about this at uni years ago. And a lecturer pointedly telling us, every one of us, you do it, you do it. And every one of us, one of, us, of course, was absolutely aghast. No, of course we wouldn't, but would we? Would we have back then? Knowing what I know now, of course I wouldn't press a button to give somebody a shock because they gave an incorrect answer because of what I know now. But would the younger Richie Allen have gone, go on, zap him, zap him again. Zap him some more. Who knows? Thank you to Sarah Habubi and thank you uh, earlier on to Kimberly Isherwood. That was Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. You and I will speak again tomorrow at five o'clock. Until then, I'm leaving you with the cores. Why not, eh? The cores. I'm so young. So long.